So, we are in this series, and the reason we're in this series is because Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is he's pinning these letters to the church that was dealing with slumber, that was dealing with a nonchalant, que-sera-sera-whatever-will-be, whatever will be almost slothfulness and apathy to the grace of God. And Paul had seen when a church gets like that, they get distracted from what is important. They get um, apathetic and devoid of, of learning doctrine. There's no real discipleship that's happening. They get distracted from, from what it means to live out faithfully. And Paul's letting them know this should never be the attitude because once our eyes are really open to who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus has said, and the grace that that provides for us, we should never fall asleep. That should put a fire in us. That should never be uh, turned to a flicker. It should move us. And so he's fanning the flame, he's opening the eyes, and he's helping them to be alert and awakened to who Christ is. And Paul, he's been corresponding to this church for about a year around A.D. 56. And this is a church that wasn't like, oh, I've heard some bad things, so let me write a letter from some stranger that's anonymous that they'll never know. No, he's, he's signing his name. He has love for this church. He's been there among the people. He cared for them and founded this church. And even though he's a thousand miles away, he's writing back and forth to them, helping to answer their questions, ultimately helping them to wake up and see the glory, the grace, and the gospel that's found in Jesus Christ. And that's the highlight of 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he's still continuing writing back and forth, but he's realizing that many of them have, have gotten this point. They're, they're, they've been nudged. The alarm has sounded. They're awake. And now they're like, all right, what's, what's the next? What's the next thing? And Paul reminds them that just as Christ gave this grace to you, now you're entrusted to carry it. That it didn't come to you to stop at you. It came to you to go to other people. And that you have been entrusted as a church, as disciples, to carry that message. And he talks about what that looks like. The, the practical applications of this. This is not just some theoretical or, or abstract idea about God. This gets down to the very nitty gritty of life. Even where it might hurt. It might be awkward. It might feel difficult. But you know deep in your heart, this is what God has called you to do. And some of those areas that are most difficult is when we're talking about the almighty dollar. Which the dollar is not almighty, by the way. It's just a piece of paper. But when we talk about our pocketbooks, sometimes it gets a little sticky. And Paul spends a lot of time in his letters writing about how grace and generosity are intertwined. And how they are needed to be a part of the activity of the church. Not because God is broke. Not because God is lacking. Not because God is inefficient or deficient when it comes to funds. God is not dealing with some major overdraft scenario in his bank account, okay? But that God out of His grace to His church, has called them to take part of what He gloriously does to say that I am the most gracious of gift givers. But as my children, you are to reflect your Father. As my children, you are to bear 
the image of people who know grace, experience grace, embrace grace, and also overflow with grace. And this must take part in the area of generosity. We talked a lot about this two weeks ago when we looked at the first intro of generosity and, and talked about how the Bible speaks a lot about how we deal with money. And, it ta- and Jesus talked a lot about how we deal with money. And whenever a preacher starts talking about money, our, we get a little uncomfortable. I understand that. It is awkward for me even to talk about that. I will be clear. But in the confidence that comes from God's Word and the authority that says it is all applicable to our life, we must invest in it together. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me as you are into 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We're going to be looking at just a few verses from chapter 9, but we'll be looking at the entirety, but we're going to read this text. So would you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. Paul says this as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen these words. The point, man, I like it when people get to the point, right? The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, He distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we've read from your word, and yes, it was penned by the hands of men over a period of several hundreds of years, but it is your Holy Spirit who's brought the Bible and preserved it for us and made it accessible to us. It's your Holy Spirit that inspired those men. It's your word, your, your nature, your character that is infallible as we read through it. And just as it is inerrant, we see it is absolutely necessary authoritative and sufficient for our lives so today as we come under the teaching of your word i pray that you would help us have ears that hear eyes that see a heart that embraces you and lives that reflect you jesus help me be your servant today and the power of your spirit who has promised to be with us today and is with us wherever we go may you be the one who shines the brightest light in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So anytime you start hearing preachers that talk about reaping and sowing and that kind of thing, I understand the nature and the culture that we live in. It can be a little antsy, a little difficult because you think, eh, is this person going to be talking about you no know, one sowing seed money and all this kind of thing? And is this person just out to make a quick buck? And, and that's not what this is about. I, I want you to know that. This is not to, to line my pocketbook or Eastgate's pocketbook or anything like that. We just want to be obedient in teaching God's Word faithfully on this area. And two weeks ago, just a kind of a quick highlight, we talked about the intro to, to 
grace and generosity and how they're intertwined and what that looks like. We talked about how there's some fundamentals when we look at it. And it's not just a, a cut and dry, black and white, just put it the pen on the paper kind of deal. It's a heart issue. It's a life issue. It's an obedience issue. It's a faith issue. And in that fundamentals of, of generosity that's been grace-shaped, we talked about how First of all, it has to be propelled by God's grace. That's what we see in chapter 8, verse 1. That it's something that, that is backed up, influenced, originating, and oriented towards the grace of God and by the grace of God and for the grace of God. Secondly, we talked about that when it comes to grace and shaped generosity, it overcomes problematic scenarios. That, that these scenarios, these circumstances are not obstacles that say, well, these are, these are too big. You know, they're, in other words, we're saying these are bigger than God. No, they're able to overcome them. And that whenever it happens, you start seeing the people that give as philanthropists. Not people looking for the next photo op, but you see a kindness that comes from that that's genuine. It's, it's joy-filled. We see that people that are these type of givers that are grace-shaped are also, they, they consider it a privilege to take part. They don't consider it um, just due diligence or a, an obligation. They consider it a part. They consider it a product of their worship. It's a part of giving to the Lord. They understand that this parallels just as much as living piously, as living a holy life, that, that just as these other practices of faith and speech and conduct and knowledge are a part of our life, that also giving and serving are a virtue and practice that are just in the same line. We talked about how it's a proof of genuine love. That it's, it's, it reflects our love for Jesus. It reflects our love for His church. It reflects our love for His cause that He's called us to. And we talked about how it's a picture of God as the gospel giver. These are aspects of grace-shaped generosity. Now, if I were to ask you the question then, outside of that, why do people normally be, get, become givers? Why do they do it? You've probably come up with a bunch of different scenarios, right? I know I could. There's different reasons and motives for people to give. Some will give out of duty. Well, you know, mom and dad always taught me to give this much out of my income to something or do something. Or maybe I see something in culture and I just got to do something. Um, we'll just give out of duty. You know? It's my responsibility as a, a taxpayer or my responsibility or whatever. We'll, we'll just put it, and some people do that with church. That's the tradition. That's what mom and dad and grandma and grandpa always taught me. Or maybe it's like, I don't want to be like grandma and grandpa. I actually want to do what the Bible says. I'm not trying to step on any toes, but that's happened before. People have re- reversed rebellion. And they'll do that out of duty. Some people do it out of self-satisfaction. Oh, it makes me feel good. It just makes me feel good when I give. Let's me know I'm doing all right. Let's me do. Let's me know that I can do this. Some people, that's the way they give. It, it just makes them feel good, and it, and it gives them a self fulfilling aspect. Some people give though out of a temper prestige. Once again, it's a photo opportunity. It'll it'll make my name look good. It won't just make me feel good. It may not even make me feel good, but it'll make other people think I'm good. So they give out of an attempt for prestige. But I think the last one is the part that really aligns with the grace and generosity aspect. They give out of love's compulsion. There's a genuine sense of love to what or who or where or
or when or why they're giving that motivates them. Maybe it's a love that's coming from them towards something or a, a love that just moves them. And so we've looked at these fundamentals a couple weeks ago, and then we talk about the reasons people give. So obviously there's a reason to it, but how do you get to it? How do you actually provoke people to take the theory and the general idea and put it to task? Put it in action. How does, how does the Scripture say we are to provoke disciples? I know provoking is one of those things you, you kind of be careful how you use the word. You know, you don't want to provoke people in a, in a negative way. But you do want to spur one another on. You want to kind of prod people on to doing that which is good. You may say that's bad. No, it's not. We do it every day. Especially those that are in this room that have children and grandchildren. Do you provoke them to wear clean clothes? Yeah. I don't care if it is their favorite t-shirt and they've worn it like all days this week. It smells like a wet sock. I'm going to provoke them. That's a good thing. Do you provoke them to wash and bathe every day? Hopefully, unless they're a junior high boy and that's sometimes a difficult, you really have to provoke them then. Believe me. Do you provoke them to brush their teeth? Yeah. Not just on the days they go to the dentist either, hopefully. Do you provoke them to go to school? Yeah. I know very few kids are like, yay, I can't wait to go to school every single day of the week. They may be excited at the beginning of the year because they're like, I'm tired of being at home. Um, and we as parents may be celebrating that and saying, glory, hallelujah, you're tired to be at home. Unless you homeschool, then their school is at home. <laughs> and then they never get away. That's right. Um, but we provoke them. They've been like, I don't want to go there. But we know they need it. By the way, that's an excuse whenever I hear people saying, you know, oh, I don't really want to take my kids to church. I know it's a sad venture from where our message is today. But whenever you hear people that say, oh, my kids, I don't know if I really need to carry them to church. You make them do all kinds of other things they don't want to do that you know is good for them. Get their tails in church. I'm just going to put that there. All right. So, provoking. <laughs> I might have provoked some people today. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. So how does the Scripture provoke disciples to put into practice the fundamentals of grace and generosity? How does it provoke us to do this? Well, the Bible takes these fundamentals, these general reasons, and it says, now this is how you put it to task. The first thing it does, as we see, is, is it provides practical arrangements for a profitable action. In verses 10 through 24 of chapter 8, the Bible talks about some activities in our life that need and are necessary for the disciple, that we must encourage, we must provoke among one another, and Paul makes no bones about it. He begins putting the people to the task. This is what it says. He says, in this matter, after talking about how Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that in his poverty you might become rich, he goes on to say, and in this matter... Talking about you, the church locally, the church in Corinth, and the, thus the church in perpetuity. In this matter, I am giving you advice because it is profitable for you who began last year not only to do something but also to want to do it, now also finish the task. So that just as there was an eager desire, there may be also a completion according to what you have. So Paul says, in this church, there were people who, who they, 
out of their own motives, said, hey, we want to give. They had this love's compulsion. They had this, God has shown his grace, and we want to take part. They were eager givers. And Paul said, this was what was happening in Macedonia, and I saw a glimpse of it when I was with you last year in Corinth. Now, don't let it just be good intentions. Move it to good action. Move it to fruitfulness. Move it to profitable action. Make the arrangements necessary to do what you said you wanted to do. And don't let it just be like, well, I meant to do that, but I never got around to it. You ever done that? Ever been guilty of that? Well, I got good intention. God knows my heart. That's great. But when is that good intention going to move you to greater action? This is not just a part of our life when it comes to our giving area. This is a part of our attitude in all areas of taking virtues and, and, and practice and principles of the Scripture and putting them into movement, putting them in a direction. Paul says, here's the practical thing. Be a willing giver. Not a willing thinker, but actually a willing giver. Say, I am not only just thinking about doing it, I am doing it. If you're going to have practical arrangements for profitable action, you've got to take the idea and put it into movement. Not only that, you must be willing givers, but you also must be faith-filled and faithful givers. Faith-filled and faithful givers. Filled knowing what Jesus has done for you and faithful to the task He has put ahead of you. This you see in verses 13 through 24. You see what Paul is speaking about when he says that that whenever you came together, there was a desire to serve others. Look at verses 16 through 17. It says, Thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus. For he welcomed our appeal and being very diligent went out to you by his own choice. That, That Paul, I mean, Paul had this desire to see this activity in the life of the church at Corinth. And he had seen it resonate in churches throughout. But it also was not just Paul saying, well, I'm, I'm an apostle. This is like my job. It was also taking root in others. And that there was this man named Titus. Titus eventually goes on to become a, a pastor on the island of Crete. That's where you see the book of Titus, the letter to Titus, written. But it says of his own accord, even though he knew it was on our heart, he, he did this. He, it moved him. He had a concern to be a part, to take part in, and to put himself at risk and begin traveling the thousands of miles, the month-long journeys to go from one place to another to make this service available. He and others. But Titus is the one mentioned. And there began a desire to serve, to put this to task. And it would be costly for Titus. It wasn't just like he'd get up, get in his car, drive three miles, Go pass around a plate and then, and then go easily deposit in the bank. No, he would have to arrange the walk, the travel, the months, the, the ship, the, the whatever camels, whatever wagons, whatever it would take to get to one place or another, then collect it, actual physical money, and then get it back to the people that he needed to get it back to and putting himself in danger of robbery, theft, sickness, weather, climate, all other ailments. And yet his desire and concern to be a part of grace and generosity and how that overflows from the life of a disciple, it moved him with a desire to serve others, to put himself even at risk of doing it. It also creates a burden from the loss. 
says, we have sent him with the brother who is praised among all the churches. There was another brother that went for his gospel ministry. A gospel ministry is, is one that goes about and it, it shares the gospel with those who have not yet heard. Someone who is known for their gospel ministry is someone who has a deep concern for the lost. It's not that they don't care for the church. They do care about the church. But they want to grow the church by letting people know the gospel. So there was another that went. They had a burden for the lost in the midst of it. And then there was a delight in honoring God. This is not only that, but he, also, uh, he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with the gracious gift that we are administrating for the glory of God himself and to show our eagerness to help. These people were going because they too loved the Lord. And they had a desire to honor Him. And He delighted in honoring God. I'm going to ask this question. I've had to ask it myself. I know it's right that we should honor God. I think we get that, right? We, we should, we, the Bible tells us that we should honor God. That's a good thing. But do you delight in it? Do you delight in honoring God? I think that's a whole nother level. Where we decide, delight ourselves in the goodness of the Lord. And this man says he was living for the glory of the Lord himself. He was showing eagerness to help. That's not just a knowing what's right. That's a delight in it. That's, that's I, I, I can't help but desire to see God glorified. Even in something like just giving. There was a responsible accountability. He says, we are taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administrating. In other words, Paul's saying we're not just careless about this. We know there needs to be accountability. And so we're making sure that as we're preparing for this long journey to collect all this money that will eventually go to help the needs of the saints, the thousands upon thousands who were jobless, homeless, in Jerusalem that were a part of the new church because they had been abandoned by family and friends and employers. We're going to help them. But Paul says we're not going to be just lackadaisical with this. We're going to be very careful and accountable with this we try to be that way here at eastgate with keeping up with the contributions with with showing you with good stewardship where these things are going with making sure no one is taken advantage of indeed we are we're giving careful thought to do what is right not only before the lord because god is going to hold us all accountable but also before people because these are brothers and sisters that we care about you are our brothers and sisters so we've also sent with them our brother we have often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be diligent. And now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker for you. As for our brothers, they are the messengers of the churches. They're, they're people that has been sent and the glory of Christ. They're, they're giving glory to him. Therefore, show the proof before the churches of your love and our, our boasting about you. Paul talks about there being a loving cooperation that was happening between multiple churches, between multiple brothers, between multiple good stewards. In other words, what you see is Paul is saying, when it comes to this area of grace and generosity, don't just talk about it theoretically. Don't just talk about it with good intentions. Look to see 
how in your life as a disciple individually, in your life as a family unit, in your life as the church collectively, you will make practical arrangements for profitable action. That these things actually take root and they grow and give glory to God that's profitable for our life. These are arrangements. The next aspect we see about how the Scripture provokes disciples to put into practice the, the fundamentals of grace and generosity, we see the practical examples for profitable effects. Not only are there practical arrangements, but we begin seeing examples of how this brings profitable effects into our lives, the lives of others. We see how giving provokes others. In verses 1-5, through five, it says, Now concerning the ministry of the saints, it was unnecessary for me to write to you. Once again, he's reminding them, I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians and to Acacia, where he has been where, where, since. I boast about you to the Macedonians. Acacia has been ready since last year, so these supplements that are about to go to the church of Jerusalem to help the needs of the many—they're happening all over the place. And it says your zeal has stirred up most of them, because what Paul's saying, I just bragged to you about the Macedonians, but guess what? They've heard about you. What's going on with you? How God is transforming you. How once was something difficult and troublesome is now moving to a positive place. And they're they're blessed. They're provoked by it. Man, I, I just want to stop there. May we never look at what God is doing in another church that is bringing Him glory and look on them with envy disdain and feeling inefficient and insecure in ourselves, may it provoke us to say, God, thank you for what you're doing. And, and they may be in another place for you. And they may be like a case. They were ready last year. But you're getting us there, and we're going that way. We're not going to sit stewing, wishing we had something we don't have. We're going to be provoked to do better. We're going to be provoked to move on. And Paul is saying this happened in a mutual way. Macedonians, Nicatians, they're, they're encouraging you, they're provoking you, and you are provoking them. And that's good. That's cooperation. That's love and brotherhood together. That's family. That's reminded that we are the one church, that there is one God that we serve. Not only with your love, with your giving, provoke others, as it goes on to say through verses 1 through 5, but it says your giving will also bless you. That giving does something Really interesting in our life. It actually brings blessing to us. It brings the blessing of increase. Paul says the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap reap generously. Let's use the, the, uh, the viewpoint of a farmer and a banker. Those are two investment realities that we might know of. A farmer knows if he wants more crops, what's he got to do? Plant more seed on more land. If he wants more crops, plant more seed on more land. He knows that if I don't put enough seed out and there's not enough land, guess what there's not going to be? Not enough harvest. He knows that. That's the principle of increase. If I do this sparingly, I'm going to reap sparingly. But if I'm faithful to do what I need to do, put those things in place, I know there's all the dependence on weather and stuff, but usually the, the outcome is with more land, more seed sowed, better crops, more crops. 
The same is true when it comes to banking. Those who are able to invest more, guess what? They get bigger dividends in return. They do. I'm thankful that there are people that can invest millions of dollars. I can't ever do that. I don't think I'll ever be in a place to do that. And that's okay. But I'm thankful there are those that, are, that can sow millions of dollars and reap incredible interest and then use that for the glory of God. When it comes to how we give and how we serve the Lord with our time and our talent and our treasure, this speaking mostly of the treasure aspect, but in the other areas it's applicable as well. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. That's the whole principle of increase. Don't expect a great yield if you're not going to put a great sowing. Don't expect a great blessing in the area of giving if you're only doing just as sparingly as possible. When you look at it as an investment, you say, God, you can do more with this than I could ever do. That's important. The area of intent. Motives matter. It's not only just doing it just as a whole math problem area and figuring out that investment. There's also the area of intent. Paul says, each person should do as he's decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or out of compulsion since God loves a cheerful giver. There's not only the idea of the principle of increase, there's also the principle of intent. See, there's one thing that's different about us than a farmer or a banker. Actually, there's two things. We'll get to that in a minute. See, the farmer and the banker, they, they just know the whole principle of increase. If I, if I sow a lot, I should reap a lot. Pretty much cut and dry. But when it comes to our lives, there's another level. The farmer doesn't have to go say, well, I'm going to do this, and I hope my heart is right and my plants will grow. You know? The plants grow and ain't dependent on their heart. It may be dependent on their labor, but it's not dependent on their heart. But when it comes to our service of worship to the Lord with our time, talent, and treasure, and how we give and show grace and generosity intertwined, intent matters. Intent matters because God sees what is there. And He is not... Even Paul's saying, I'm not asking you to give reluctantly. I'm not asking you to give out of compulsion. But I am asking for those that do give to do what they've decided in their heart as a cheerful giver to the Lord. Not say, well, my heart says this. No, do it with a cheerful heart to the Lord. So you need to check your heart with the Lord with how you give your time and talent and treasure and see what it has. The last part is immediacy. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that every way, always having everything you need, He may excel in every good work. As it is written, He distributed freely and gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So there's the other aspect that's different from the farmer and the banker. The farmer and the banker, they do work on the area of increase. But the area of intent doesn't matter too much for the farmer because if his heart's not right, his plants still may grow. It's just a part of it, God's common grace. But there's also the fact of immediacy that the farmer and the banker have to wait the certain period of time for the growth season or the interest dividend season. But the believer in Christ, there is an immediate effect. It happens and is available right then and there. It's something they do not have to wait for. It says that God is able to make some grace overflow, a little bit of grace overflow. No, 
every grace overflow to you, that you are not lacking any grace, and so that in every way, every means, you may have everything that you need, and you may excel in every good work. That God does something immediately by His grace that much greater overcomes any generosity we have. God provides immediately for us. Paul writes this excerpt in here that he distributed freely and he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He writes this from Psalm 112. This echoing of God's grace that I don't know why God would be so mindful, but God provides this. He reminds the reader, he reminds the listener as this letter is being read to the church, now the one who provides the seed for the sower and bread for the food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. In other words, there was a time when you didn't have seed and bread. And ultimately, if you had to make it poof out of nothing, guess what? Tough luck. None of us can make our own seed. We can't just say, think good thoughts and seed appears. We can't just send out good vibes and bread is on the table. Someone had to get it to us. And when we say, well, I work for it. Okay. That may be true. But that person didn't make it. Somebody else made it. And ultimately, when you go back, it all begins and originates with God, who once there was nothing, He spoke everything into existence, knowing the fullness of time. He had this incredible plan. And there, in, in the moment of His plan, is your story. And He says, I have provided this for you. So think not that you have earned all this on your own, but remember the One who provides the seed for the sower, the One who provides bread for the food. And know that if God can do that, and make that out of nothing, why would I ever shortchange His character, His power, by saying, ah, God's not able to provide for me. God will bless you when your heart and your life and your, your intentions and your actions reflect His grace and generosity in a very practical, actionable way that is profitable for you. But not only does your giving provoke others, not only does it bless you, it also meets needs. Verse 12 says, For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. It's helping people come to know the Lord. It's helping them have their physical needs met, that just as you have been provided, it is helping them. It's going to actually meet needs. It's not just sitting in some drawer somewhere. It's not just a figure in some computer somewhere. It is actually doing the work. I mean, that be reminders of us. Not to be dependent just on, on some security of zeros. It's good to save for the rainy day. I understand that. That's a biblical principle. Not save for the rainy day. That's another verse from some other uh, way of thinking. But it's the principle is in the Scripture. I just want you to know that saving for a rainy day is not a Bible verse. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't want to be a heretic, okay? But it's a reminder that God has provided this to meet the needs where they're meant to meet. And in doing so, how does it meet the needs? But it overflows in many expressions of thanks to God. 
because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel and for your generosity. Your obedience and your generosity. Actionable. And sharing with them means with everyone. This glorifies God. How could we not be about something that brings glory to God? Who shared His glory and His grace and His gospel with us? It meets needs. It glorifies God. It blesses you. It provokes others. And all, it also edifies and unifies the church. He says this, this is happening is sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have a deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. That God begins uniting brothers and sisters around this common cause, this common love, this common direction. It edifies them. It encourages them. It unifies them. But then it also turns us back as we are edified and unified together to look and say thanks be to God for His undescribable it brings us back to that reflection of the gospel that were it not for grace, who would any of us be? What would any of us have? What right or merit could any of us provide? What gift could we lay down and say we are worthy? None of us. Because it brings us back to the gospel that reminds us that when we all look back, we're looking to a God who is holy and far more righteous. And righteousness is the standard made by God. And we all fall short of it. It brings us back to the offense of sin that when we're so thankful to His indescribable gift, we understand we don't deserve it. Because of the offense of sin. It brings us back to the sufficiency of the Savior who was the incredible gift that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son in our place. That whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It brings us back to that indescribable gift that says, I have made this possible so that you can have a personal response to what I'm opening your eyes to, to what I'm awakened you to see. That this grace was provided to you. It is an indescribable gift because it lets eternity be changed. That all of us are on this default path because of sin towards hell, death, destruction, curse. But because of this indescribable gift, our eternity can be switched. God has provided the detour, the change, the narrow path. It's the way we say thanks for God for His indescribable gift. Because our life becomes transformed by it. That we become a reflection of His image. We get to be returned back to that intention of Eden. But it's not just intention, it's action. Because God made grace and generosity abound to us in His indescribable gift. How, we must ask now, how can we reflect the same where He has called us to place it in the world? And not just by mere good thoughts or good intentions, but practical arrangements for profitable action and by practical examples for profitable effect. May, be, may we be a church that reflects this great God and His indescribable gift. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that today as we come to this moment of response, that wherever someone is with the Word, I, I know some may have come to this church today and they thought, I didn't expect to come on a day where there was a giving message. And 
It's always awkward for me to think that somebody new would say, well, I came in and the preacher's talking about money. But nevertheless, that's, that's not what we need to focus on. At this moment, we need to focus on what it is you are saying to our lives, our hearts, that we need to engage with our minds. And God, today I pray that if there are some that, are, that have just become hardened, uh, conforming to the patterns of this world, that God, you would renew their minds. That God, those that may be hardened with hearts of stone, you would, you would give them a heart and soul that reflects after you. And Jesus, may you move those hearts and minds to actually words and deeds and responses. Whatever it is we need to do in this moment of response, I pray that we would say yes to you. Wherever you lead. That wherever, even if it means forsaking areas of our life and turning away from paths we've been on for, for so long, God, we would turn back and see the grace and the indescribable gift that comes from your grace and generosity to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.